everyone. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about crypto enforcement today. I figured the best way to start this was by going around and having each of the panelists just give a couple of sentences on their background, and then we'll jump right into the topics of discussion. Um, so why don't we start with Eric? Sure, thanks, Mackenzie. Uh, I'm Eric Rosen. I'm a current partner at Roche Friedman in Boston, Mass. And I apologize, my seems like I'm getting a little bit of a, your internet is unstable here, so I might have to log back out and then back on again if no one can, can hear me. But um, the former AUSA in Boston and Pittsburgh for nearly nine years. And uh, before that, I was uh, assistant district attorney in New York for a few years uh, right out of law school. Thanks. Um, next, we'll jump to Dan, who's the next person on my screen. Uh, thanks, Mackenzie. Thanks for the invitation. Uh, my name is Dan Kaliba. I work at Circle Internet Financial, also known as Circle. We're a Boston-based company, and we're the company that's behind USDC, the stablecoin. Uh, before I joined Circle last year, I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco as an AUSA doing criminal cases for about 14 years, and I was in private practice at Cooley. Uh, before we join the government. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Um, next up, Pam. I'm, <clears throat> excuse me. I'm Pam Sawney. I'm with the SEC's New York office, um, where I've been since 2016. Um, I'm currently in our crypto asset and cyber unit, which used to be known as the cyber unit. We recently changed our name um, since 2017 when it was formed. Um, prior to that, I was in um, our general New York office core group, and prior to that, I was in private practice for nine years. Excited to be here today and talk crypto. Thanks, Pam. Uh, Jesse? Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. It's nice to be around all these government or former government folks. Um, I'm currently at Ribbit Capital, which is a VC investment firm. We invest in fintech and crypto um, all over the world. I do all their compliance and regulatory work here. Um, I've been here for about a year and a half. Prior to that, I was at the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. for about a decade doing a variety of types of crimes, but in the most recent years, um, a bunch of crypto cases that we're going to talk about um, involving laundering and terrorism, et cetera. For that, I did a few other things, but uh, less relevant for this discussion. And last but not least, Rita. Thanks, Mackenzie, and good afternoon, Boston Bar. My name is Rita Martin. I am a member of the Global Investigations Team here at TRM Labs. We are a blockchain intelligence company who uh, is building the tools to hopefully make all of your jobs uh, on this call just a little bit easier, particularly when conducting on-chain investigations. Uh, I made the switch to TRM recently after spending about seven years as a special agent with the U.S. Secret Service, where I worked uh, high high-value um, Russian-speaking targets, as well as complex cybercrime and financially motivated cybercrime cases. Um, excited to be with you all this afternoon. Thanks so much, everyone. So I figured how we could start was um, a discussion. I, mean, Kenzie, of I think you forgot uh, Kyle. Uh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and Kyle on the bottom of my screen. I'm so sorry. Not a problem, at least for us person on this call. So I don't blame <laughs> you whatsoever. My name is Kyle Roshan a founder of law firm Roche Friedman, uh, work with Eric uh, out of our New York office primarily. Uh, before I started Roche Friedman, I was a litigator at Boy Shuller Flexner. I've been in the cryptocurrency space for um, going back to 2013. I primarily started 
in the space looking, uh, writing academic articles about the intersection of blockchain and the law. I wrote a couple articles in the Wall Street Journal and law reviews. And then in 2019, started a law firm. The idea of the firm was the given the growth of crypto current, uh, cryptocurrency and litigation surrounding cryptocurrencies, um, I wanted to build a place that both uh, pursued uh, interesting and complex plaintiffs work in the cryptocurrency space, as well as representing some of the, the top innovators of the space. So we do a mix, probably 50-50 plaintiffs defense side work in the crypto space. And it's um, you know, since launching the firm in 2019, we've, we've grown from a three-person firm to now being able to attract uh, the superstars like Eric Rosen. Um, so we're 20, I think five, 26, lawyers now. So it's it's been exciting to grow along with this space and uh, excited to talk to you guys about where, where, at least from the private practice, I see the space going over the next couple of years. Great. Thanks so much. Um, so I think it makes sense to sort of start, um, given that we have a diverse range of backgrounds here with all of our attendees, with talking about some of the basics surrounding the development of crypto and some of the relevant concepts that we'll be addressing and that practitioners might see in their workspace. Um, so Jesse and Eric, do you mind taking the lead on explaining some of the development of crypto, focusing on concepts like blockchain and uh, what wallets are? Sure. I'll, I'll go first. I first just want to say that um, it sounds daunting, all of this technology, particularly if you're not a technologist and you know, you're more of a lawyer, but um, to be able to understand it, uh, at least like at a preliminary level is relatively easy if you sort of know where to look. Um, so understanding that this could take years of training and understanding and also that there's varied experience here. Um, I'll just sort of give an overview. So we hear the word crypto a lot. We hear Bitcoin, we hear Ethereum. We hear a lot of these catchphrases. We hear decentralization. A lot of um, them have much more uh, tangible definitions than are frequently um, used in the larger space. But one thing to really understand is that the purpose of cryptocurrency from the start was to just sort of pull the power of money from a centralized entity and largely from governments. And so that was sort of the impetus of it. And that's how you can sort of think about how Bitcoin began. And then it stemmed to Ethereum. So Bitcoin and Ethereum are the biggest names and there's thousands of other virtual assets. They all um, act in very different ways. So it's, it's difficult to say like, this is how all cryptocurrency works, but what they all have in common or mostly have in common is that they rely on something called the blockchain. So whenever a transaction occurs in Bitcoin, whenever a transaction occurs in Ethereum, whenever a transaction occurs on blank token, it's going to be written on an immutable blockchain. Now, some of them are more private than others, but generally and for purposes of what we're talking about here, most of them are immutable and also transparent. And so that means that anytime a transaction occurs, not only can is it written and then written there forever, but that it also um, is seen, you can use like blockchain analytics tools or like if you understand how to read it, um, you can see it sort of in perpetuity forever and you can see what different people are transacting with. Now, what's interesting to understand here is it's not, it doesn't say like Jesse sent Eric 
this amount of money, obviously. Instead, it's saying these characters that are blah, 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 sent to blah, 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 ending in blah, blah, blah. And what those represent are, it's a little more complicated than this, but essentially your public address. And that all comes from your wallet. So in order to be able to transact in cryptocurrencies, you need to have a wallet. There's different kinds of them. There's some that are centralized. So like you can hold in something like Coinbase or there are ones that are decentralized. So it's like, it's gonna be on my phone or it's gonna be on a hard drive or something like that. And as part of your wallet, you have a private key and a public key. And you probably maybe have vaguely heard these phrases before. Your private key is the kind of thing that you shouldn't share with anybody. It's like the code to your safe. The public key is like your address, your home street address. So you're going to have a sign in the front of your house saying this is what it is. So if I want to send Bitcoin to Eric, um, I'm going to use my wallet, which is personalized to me. It's either through Coinbase or it's, you know, something that's a, you know, a extension on my Chrome browser on my phone. And I'm going to ask him for his public address and I'm going to insert it into my wallet and I'm going to say, send to this public address and he will receive money from my public address. So what you'll be able to see on the blockchain is my address sent to his address, this amount of um, transaction. And so that's what makes this so special and so interesting as I think lawyers and prosecutors, and I'll let sort of Eric jump in too, to provide some more background. But I always said, like, as I was doing terrorism cases and the fifth and X case, like, and child pornography cases, like I had done those with fiat currency and bank records. And those were miserable when you would receive like boxes and boxes of bank records to review to try and figure out what criminal sent what criminal money and how. But with the blockchain and the transparency of the blockchain, as well as the immutability of it, you can trace the transactions throughout history, you can also trace it in real time and you can see what's happening. And so that's what's so interesting at, in law enforcement um, in the crypto world. And I've always said as a prosecutor, I would take a crypto case over a fiat case any day. No, that, that, that was great. Um, thanks, Jesse. I don't have a, I guess, I, I thought your, your, you know, your overview, overview was excellent. Um, I guess I sort of want to kick it over, kick it off and, you know, bring in other people. Maybe Kyle can talk a little bit about, you know, a lot of things going on right now. We hear the word DeFi a lot. We hear, you know, different things being uh, bandied about. We, we hear about different companies going up, going down. Maybe Kyle, you could talk about, you know, Jesse's given an overview of the his history, but maybe a little bit about what we expect a little bit in sort of nomenclature uh, going forward. Sure. I, I, I suggest, I guess, two broad concepts that I think are especially relevant right now. Um, I think the intro hit sort of the genesis of why crypto became a thing spot on. Um, it was to be essentially decentralize the issuance of money. And um, in many ways it, that, that required the invention of a blockchain to sort of publicly trace all transactions. So now, what has happened as Bitcoin was introduced to the masses and, and rose in popularity is in order to buy Bitcoin or in order to buy Ethereum, um, you had to go to centralized entities to get those, those assets. And so, um, you know, the exchanges like Coinbase, Binance are what people in the space refer to as CFI or centralized finance. And that's because they are centralized institutions 
that engage in um, the, the buying and selling of crypto assets. Um, and on, so what has happened over the past couple of years, um, what some describe as sort of crypto's first big app is the rise of decentralized finance. So problem with crypto uh, centralized, fin uh, centralized finance is that it sort of removes the core thesis of crypto, which is to uh, remove intermediaries and have individuals be able to engage in peer-to-peer -peer transactions. But if you can't buy the crypto uh, without going to a centralized entity, it, it uh, uh, arguably undermines part of the purpose of, of having cryptocurrencies in the first place. So at bottom, what decentralized finance is, is, is enabling peer-to-peer -peer transactions. So if Eric has Bitcoin and I have Ethereum, um, and I want to trade some of my Ethereum for Bitcoin and Eric vice versa. For the past, prior to 2020, uh, you would typically need to go to a Coinbase, to a Binance, um, to you know, put those assets up, sell them and, and, and exchange them for another cryptocurrency. Decentralized finance is uh, the idea of, all right, we've got these things called blockchains. They can do more than just record transactions. Uh, you can have um, essentially these databases uh, control assets. And what does that mean? So uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the idea of a smart contract, a smart contract is essentially a um, digital piece of uh, a digital spot, like a website where people can come in and deposit, in the case of me and Eric, Bitcoin and Ethereum, and then interact with that contract to either withdraw Bitcoin and, and put in more Ethereum or vice versa. And so that concept is called a liquidity pool. So instead of um, the Coinbase's or the Binance's of the world making money based on the, the transa transaction flow, it's the people who are able to provide liquidity to these smart contracts who, who are able to earn um, transaction fees for the exchanging of digital assets. And so in this way, the rise of decentralized finance, I think, poses a lot of interesting questions for both lawyers like in, in private practice and regulators, because uh, in many ways, our securities regulations and, and commodities regulations um, were written with the idea of a broker, some intermediary being uh, at the heart of every every sort of swap futures contract, and now what we have. And I apologize. I need to turn my um, my phone off. But what now we have is we have code living as um, the the broker between individuals who want to buy and sell crypto assets, and so I think that. Over the next few years, especially, I think this conference is timely because uh, over the, the past couple of days, we've seen issues with a few entities, namely Celsius and their uh, issue, which is a centralized entity, so exists in the centralized finance world, and their issues relating to their ability to honor customer withdrawals. Um, arguably, these same types of issues don't exist in decentralized finance because everything's public and transparent. But there are certainly, I think, new issues and complications that arise when you don't have a centralized broker um, who is responsible for 
for engaging in transactions. So I'll stop there and Eric, toss it back to you. Sure. Uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about, maybe Dan could, uh, and I saw, sorry, Mackenzie, for uh, trying to usurp your role as a moderator. Maybe Dan could give a little bit of, uh, you know, background on what a stable coin is, just because they've been in the news so much with Terra and, uh, and other uh, issues there. Thanks, Eric. Uh, the real value proposition of this new blockchain technology is, is not what probably most people are familiar with when they think about of crypto, they're thinking about crypto trading of coins, of Matt Damon commercials, of board Ape tokens, you know, in the forms of NFTs. These are like the first use cases of blockchain technology, uh, trading sort of unique digital assets. Um, but it's just the first, we're at the dawn of a real transformation of financial services. The, almost every part of financial services is now being transformed, um, whether it's um, fiat currency into a digital form of currency, um, money market funds and US treasuries are into digitized lending pools, even stock certificates now are being digitized and you can trade them on FTX. So if any kind of financial instrument you can think about today, it is progressing into uh, the use of blockchain technologies. Uh, the internet has transformed so many parts of our lives. You know, it's transformed communications, uh, it's transformed media, it's transformed computing, just to name a few. Um, but financial services have been highly, highly resistant to change, um, but blockchain is really the killer technology that, that can change uh, financial services and how, we, uh, how money is moved around. And, and we're going to be at a day where you see it's easy to send money to somebody as it is to send a text message. And all the intermediaries that Kyle had referenced earlier, um, we can eliminate that through this through blockchain technology. Uh, so stablecoins is, is, a, is a form of taking a real dollar and putting the power of the internet on it, putting like an Iron Man suit on it and sending that digital dollar off on the internet and allowing you to, to participate in sort of an internet-based economy um, using your digital dollar. Uh, you could uh, send it to other people. If you want to send, if you're working in the United States and you want to send money to relatives down in Honduras, no problem. You could do that with your smartphone and you just send a digital dollar where you're paying huge amount of fees through the normal remittance process. You could do it uh, instantaneously and super cheap. Um, uh, with uh, digital things like digital dollars, so the idea behind it is, hey, you should have a, a secure near instantaneous settlement. It should be at a fraction of a cost of the traditional financial system. And really all you would need is a cell phone. Um, the technology exists today clearly, but the government and the regulatory has to kind of build out how to build out what, what stable coins you know, are and how we're gonna use these digital assets. The same is true for any kind of other financial service digital asset that we are trying to tokenize, whether it's stock certificates, treasuries, um, money market fools like, um, that are referenced earlier. I, you know, I think when I think about the regulatory questions or even how what the, the industry questions uh, around this concept of digital dollars, um, there was a major collapse of a major stable coin just a few weeks ago called Terra USDC, which was considered an algorithmic stable coin. And that is a coin that was uh, backed by another digital asset. Many people thought it was just a huge Ponzi scheme. Um, you know, billions of dollars were wiped out from, from it. And, and so behind, you know, the ideas of, okay, if we're going to start digitizing currency, you know, what are the rules behind this? And so um, right now it's largely governed by state money transmitter rules, at least if you're based in the USA and trying to operate in the United States. Um, most of, and many of these internet companies, you know, because it's using the internet, we can be based anywhere. So you really don't have to be based in the United States. But there's real sort of questions, I would say, under four major areas, like 
who's managing these reserves? Like there's this concept called DAO as a decentralized autonomous organization. Like what is a DAO and who's sort of calling the shots? Who's the governing body? Um, what is backing these digital assets? Um, from, for USDC where we are, we're backed by cash and US treasuries. Um, that's not just true for every sort of stable coin that's out there. It could be backed by other digital assets. It could be things that could be completely invented. So kind of what is backing the reserves? Another area that I think the government is looking at in industry is sort of where are those reserves held? Are they held on chain somewhere else? Are they gonna be locked into a liquidity pool? Um, are they gonna be, or is it sort of viewed as like cash and fiat reserves? And then under what kind of governance are these tokens issued and redeemed? So these are all sort of how do these things are, how are they operated? And we're seeing a lot of interest, especially in the wake of the Terra Luna collapse where a lot of money was, was affected by people. Um, and, and so I think it's really exciting to see in, in a lot of interest, especially on Congress, um, there's a presidential working group, um, the report that came out in November, there's a lot of work that we're seeing on this. For example, who's the regulator of record for a lot of these digital assets, not like for stable coins, they kind of look like banking uh, functions. So maybe it should be treasury that does this. Um, but also when we tokenize stocks, like who should be the regulator of record? Well, maybe that should be the SEC if it's, if we're talking about capital markets in that way. Another digital asset is like, you know, the basic ones like Bitcoin and Ether, who should be the regulator? Well, maybe that's CFTC, is it a commodity or not? You know, I think we still have to do a lot of work on the government side about how we are gonna categorize those records. But I would just say overall, um, if you take anything away from this, it's don't just think crypto is the kind of Bitcoin trading or ETH trading, it's actually tokenizing um, financial services in a way that's gonna touch, you know, touch every part of our financial services. Um, thanks, Eric. Sure. I wanna shift now to sort of talking about um, the regulatory component of this, because I know a lot of the people attending here today are practitioners that sort of want to understand the practical application of all this. Um, so I'm hoping Pam could sort of talk us through some of the history of crypto regulation generally. Sure. <clears throat> so I can give you the perspective from the securities law side. So um, I'm sure all of you know, but at the SEC, we regulate the securities market. So um, if it's not a security, we don't have jurisdiction. So that means we don't regulate every aspect of, of the crypto industry. Um, you know, the primary test that we employ when analyzing a crypto asset is called the Howey test. That's from a 1946 Supreme Court case uh, analyzing whether shares in an orange globe were securities, that they were being you know, marketed as real estate. And the court found that they were. And it articulated a test um, for determining when an investment contract is present. So um, to step back for a second, the Securities Act defines a security to include both investment contracts and notes. And analyzing these novel sort of these novel assets is often done through the investment contract analysis. So the Howey test articulated the test, sorry, it yeah, it articulated the Howey test, um, which is um, an, an asset is an investment contract if it involves an investment of money and a common enterprise with the expectation of profits based primarily on the managerial or entrepreneurial efforts of others. Um, if you strip that down, it's really not complicated. Um, it just means, you know, really getting at whether people are putting their money into something with the expectation that it'll rise in value based on what some group of people are doing. And so when we talk about centralization and decentralization, we're really in that 
um, efforts of others prong of Howey. And so one thing that the Howey court also articulated was we need to look at the economic realities of the transaction. So it doesn't matter if somebody calls themselves a DeFi platform or a DAO or, you know, decentralized finance, you know, if there is this centralized body that is, you know, running things behind the scenes and people are relying on that centralized body to increase the value of their investment, we're looking more and more like a security. So that's generally how we analyze, that's generally how we've been analyzing crypto assets for the SEC. Um, <clears throat> you know, the CFTC also uh, regulates aspects of the, of the crypto um, market. You know, they've said that Bitcoin is a commodity or you know, the SEC has not disagreed with that assessment. Um, and, you know, we, in 2017, we dedicated a specialized unit to focusing on crypto assets. Um, we call it, it was called the cyber unit at the time. Um, and we have, you know, investigated a variety of different types of violations, um, you know, from, from fraud cases, um, you know, fraud cases can look a lot like typical fraud, Ponzi schemes, MLMs, pump and dumps, just with, you know, blockchain or crypto or some name like that stamped on top of it. Sometimes they don't even actually employ crypto. Those are the sort of the true scams. Sometimes they do, but they're still, um, you know, a Ponzi scheme or, or an MLM or, or a pump and dump. Um, and um, in the fraud world, we'll see a lot of exit scams or rug pulls, as, as they like to call them now. Um, just your, your bread and butter fraud, but with a crypto spin. Um, there's a, we've brought a variety of non-fraud cases, so registration cases under Section 5. Um, in, as most of you probably know, and in, in 2017 through about 2019, um, there was sort of a flood of what are called um, initial coin offerings or ICOs. Um, it was a play, I think, on IPO, which I think in retrospect was pretty short-sighted. But um, we brought a number of enforcement actions against issuers of ICOs for um, selling unregistered securities to the general public without, uh, without an exemption from registration. Um, we've also looked at uh, crypto trading platforms or exchanges, place, you know, essentially marketplaces for these coins and these tokens. Um, we brought a case last year against Poloniex. Um, that was our first centralized exchange case. Poloniex had listed a number of um, securities tokens on its platform, um, and we reached a resolution last year. We brought a, a decentralized exchange case a couple of years ago against Ether Delta and Zach Coburn. Um, so that's another category of cases. We've looked at um, touting cases. So you, you might have seen if you're ever on social media, um, there are a lot of celebrities that promote crypto assets and a lot of them are complete junk. Um, so a few years ago, we sued uh, Floyd Mayweather and DJ Khaled for touting a completely fraudulent ICO called Centratech. Um, and a couple of years later, we sued Steven Seagal for also touting a completely fraudulent um, ICO called Bitcoin Second Generation, or B2G. Um, and then we're also looking at uh, DeFi platforms, which are, again, just platforms that are appear to be offers of traditional financial products and services, but uh, sort of claim at least to be decentralized. Um, and again, our question is, is it really decentralized? Uh, and we just really look at the economic realities. We brought a case uh, called DeFi Money Market against a purported uh, decentralized platform that was really, um, in our view, selling securities. So that's a flavor of the types of cases um, we've been looking at here in, in, at the SEC. Thanks so much. That's really helpful. I'm hoping we could kick it over to Rita. 
um, to talk about what the DOJ's role has been in crypto enforcement, um, including at the agency level, like the Secret Service and the FBI. Thanks, Mackenzie. Just wanted to highlight playing off of Pam, you know, she mentioned 2017. There is actually a pretty robust history of cases being brought um, for illicit activity concerning digital assets, dating back to actually pre-cryptocurrency, right? Dating back to the, the e-gold or the Liberty Reserve days. Um, lucky for us, uh, cyber criminals, particularly financially motivated cyber criminals, are usually the first to attempt to try this new technology. Um, and when you're a line investigator, perhaps you may not know it uh, when you onboard, but you are essentially signing yourself up for this cat and mouse game. So we are um, often challenged and kind of forced to learn this technology for ourselves as our cases um, take this direction. Um, but there is a rich history of, of enforcement um, by DOJ and our prosecutorial partners um, that actually really just land on the existing Title 18, um, you know, kind of options. Uh, one of the things that I love to do was present, um, you know, hey, this is these are the facts. The this is everything that I can tell you about what happened on chain. Um, and the beautiful part about the blockchain being immutable, as Jesse said, is that once it's on the blockchain, it is always there. Um, Jesse briefly mentioned a pretty banner case, and if it's okay, Jesse, I'm going to kind of pull that out. Um, Bitfinex. Um, Bitfinex, I believe, is on record the largest seizure of cryptocurrency to date, $1.6 billion worth, right? The illicit activity concerning that case happened in 2016. I think that we are actually just now getting to a place of saturation of the actual on-chain investigation skills to be able to conduct this work again, to find those facts on chain um, to where we are going to see an, an even more robust ramp up in um, you know, prosecutorial action against these actors. Um, as the targets in the Bitfinex case found, it's actually quite difficult to launder cryptocurrency, certainly large sums of cryptocurrency. And when you know how and where to look, it's really easy to see these patterns on chain of these big money movements. One question I had in sort of um, taking a look at this space is, how do cases involving crypto get reported to law enforcement? Like in a typical context, there may be suspicious activity reports and that's how investigators know, hey, we should probably take a look at this. What about in the context of um, crypto? Are SARS being filed on crypto assets or how do investigators sort of get this on their radar? SARS are being filed on crypto assets, it has taken, and I believe it will continue to take a little bit of maturation, again, of both that, you know, kind of line compliance officer completing that SAR, as well as law enforcement knowing how to um, to pull and collect, um, you know, often at the federal level, we would um, deal with the real reality that, you know, maybe a $10,000 scam case, we just couldn't go after. We had to deprioritize it or refer it to state or local law enforcement. Um, but with Again, the beauty of the blockchain, we can actually collect and connect victims together and see how those losses, um, you know, maybe are an indication of a much larger fraud scheme. Um, and then that kind of changes the way that we go about these cases. Um, so a couple of different methods. Yes, SARS, but I think that there's going to continue to be a little bit of um, settling on, on what true definitions are and, again, just conducting good on-chain investigations. But two, uh, the Bureau specifically has been collecting data directly from victims in the form of IC3 reports, um, the Internet 
at uh, Cybercrime Complaint Center at ic3.gov. That's also a really excellent way um, for individual victims to report that data. And us as federal law enforcement officers and some select folks in private industry um, can also um, you know, get access to that data. Uh, something that we are rolling out or we have rolled out as TRM Labs is the crypto answer to that um, that's called chain abuse. Um, chain abuse is our method to try and meet these crypto actors where they are. Um, we're active on Discord platforms. We allow folks to submit uh, scam and abuse reports against seven different blockchains. Um, and we give everyone um, access to be able to search all of those illicit addresses. So if you have any suspicions about whether or not something's a scam, um, chainabuse.com is a really great way to also see um, you know, whether something is flagged is risky, or for me as the investigator, uh, go and find new cases. If I could jump in as well, um, just throw in a few anecdotes to show you how like some of these cases sort of came to fruition, you'd be like a little bit surprised. Um, you know, a lot of these are leads that can come from SARS, but also so much of this is public, which can be good and bad. Um, you know, like we had a huge terrorism takedown case, which pretty much started with um, the Al-Qassam brigades posting on Twitter, a public address saying send Bitcoin here. And then they put up a website that we ended up mirroring and taking over, um, which was send Bitcoin to these varied addresses. Similarly with Welcome to Video, which was a child pornography website. Um, it was buy child pornography by sending us Bitcoin. And then with the Bitfinex hack case, one, you know, I, I can't anymore speak on behalf of the prosecution team. That's my, my caveat with all of this. But, you know, so much of this space, and there's obviously a lot of illicit activity here, and I don't want to negate that in any way. But, like, in many ways, the private sector, not only because they want to be good stewards of a safe financial uh, system, but, like, they are affected anytime, like, the um, blockchain gets attacked anytime they get hacked. And so with Bitfinex, it was a lot of working with victims in order to be able to find this insane amount of money and working with the rest of the private sector in order to be able to trace it. Um, but what I will also say is like, what comes with this transparency is a lot of good things as we've been talking about, um, but also like a loss of privacy in many ways in our financial, in, you know, our, our financial security and our private transactions. And that is lending itself to hackers and bad actors taking advantage of that because they'll be able to see where lots of the money is. And that's what we're seeing right now with a lot of these hacks in the news and a lot of both centralized and decentralized entities being, whether it be their treasuries or, or whatever entity is being hacked in order to be able to take money. And this whole concept that underlies this all is like code is law, right? So we have to sort of reframe like what the laws in this space and like what actually is the law of each protocol, what's actually the law of each blockchain and understand that like with this transparency comes a lot of trade-offs. And I think law enforcement is really like becoming beginning to be ahead of the game and in, in how to prosecute it, but there needs to be some new rules established as well. Jesse, maybe it would be um, a little bit, you know, interesting to hear your thoughts about the CODA's law sort of uh, perspective and sort of what does that actually mean? I know that a lot of people are practitioners here in the space and, you know, you hear people on, online talk about CODA's law, it couldn't have been X or couldn't have been Y, like what does it actually mean? Is it does it comport with the law or, you know, the, 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 the non-code law, or is it, uh, you know, in your, in your view, something else? 
Well, as a lawyer and like a prosecutor at heart, I don't think code is law. I think the law is law. And so like, let's enforce it. However, the concept behind it is simply like, as Kyle was talking about um, in the beginning with smart contracts, it's sort of, you establish these rules. It's I'm gonna enter this contract and when X happens, Y should happen following. And similarly, like all, a lot of these protocols, largely the decentralized ones, but you know, some of the centralized ones are partially decentralized, have all these rules written into it, like how their treasury should be managed, who's allowed to vote their tokens, which is a governance token kind of concept um, in order to be able to send money here or give this grant there. And a lot of smart, but maybe bad or maybe mis, um, misaligned individuals are taking advantage of that because I don't wanna to get too technical here, but for example, if there's a decentralized entity that has a treasury that has a few hundred millions of dollars, which isn't that rare, um, that treasury might be controlled by the community, the decentralized community that holds the tokens that vote to decide what um, should happen with this treasury. Now there is hundreds of millions of dollars in whatever token, it could be a stable coin, just sitting there ready to be doled out to help the decentralized system to do whatever with but it's also sitting there ready to be hacked and it's not like in a bank vault that's backed by the government that has some sort of like guarantee on it rather it's controlled by the code and the laws that control that code right and that are written into it already and i'm not a software engineer but i think it's pretty obvious that you can't anticipate every bad thing or every potential hole in every contract. I think any contract lawyer would get that. So writing code to protect yourself from every possible bad thing that could happen is nearly impossible. And so what a lot of bad actors are doing, or at least smart technical actors are doing, is that they say, oh, like if I take over 51% of the tokens that control this treasury, then I essentially control that treasury. And what you can do with a lot of these protocols is you maybe don't need to like buy 51% of the tokens, but instead you take your 10%, you leverage them, you get more money back, you get then invest that and you layer all these levels to the point of like, what is money anymore? And then you essentially control 51% of the treasury and you can put that a hundred million dollars or whatever to your public address and then move it from there. Are you breaking the law? Aren't you just following the code and the law that is associated with that protocol? I think those kinds of questions are like really down the road for us to figure out. That's great, thanks. Eric, can you talk a little bit about the role of the DSA in this space? Sure, it, you know, the, um, you know, as, a, as sort of a practitioner, both, you know, in the enforcement actions, as well as sort of just generally sort of what, you know, we talk about the SEC, we talk about, um, you know, we talk about the CFTC, but sort of, you know, you get a client, you get someone that it's a sort of a decentralized exchange that comes to you and says, you know, Eric or, or Jesse or Kyle, sort of what are, what do we have to, what do we sort of have to be thinking about in this space in terms of just enforce, you know, am I going to get hit down, down the road for failing to file sort of SARS? I mean, you know, is FinCEN going to come after me with the, with the DOJ? And, you know, these are, you know, what I found sort of going, you know, in this is that there's, there's no real easy answer, unfortunately, to these questions. Um, there's certainly laws, uh, but I would, I would say the most important thing, you know, 
you know, looking at that is really just, you know, it's almost developing like sort of a common law. I think the most important thing that we, that I sort of tell clients or prospective clients is really look at the enforcement actions that have uh, occurred so far. Are you a money transmitter potentially subject to the uh, Bank Secrecy Act? Do you provide, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, as Pam said, you call yourself a decentralized exchange. Well, it's more than just the label that you throw upon yourself or that your client throws upon yourself. You really have to look at the software and see what they're actually, what they're actually doing. Are they setting up a, a just a, a pure software package for the, for the matching of buyers and sellers? Or does any money or crypto actually flow through their, their ecosystem that they might be subject to, um, subject to some type of, um, uh, you know, some type of, you know, BSA uh, analysis that could really, you know, cost them a lot of money, first of all, to comply. But the second part of it is, if you're subject to the BSA as a, as a decentralized exchange and none of your peers are, well, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like, guess what? You're probably not going to uh, be around very long because most people are probably not going to use your, don't want to do the KYC if you're, if you're sort of a customer. Um, I think one of the other, you know, things that people are typically, um, at, at, you know, whether you're in decentralized or centralized finance or really anything involving uh, the use of any type of crypto or money is OFAC. I don't think there's really much of a way to sort of get around that. I know if someone who is, is more knowledgeable than me, I know that there was a recent uh, case out of uh, DC involving crypto and OFAC. Uh, I actually haven't read it yet, but I'm sure someone on this panel has, so they can they can jump in. And then just generally, like, are you a securities exchange if you're involved in centralized finance or somehow acting like 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 one? Do you provide an order book and a website to trade securities? Are you even trading? Are you even you know dealing with securities? Are you dealing with Bitcoin and Ether, who are, which are typically more of a, you know classified as commodities typically by everyone? Or are you dealing with some of these altcoins that most people? I think 99% would classify as a security. So there's a lot of multi multi levels, but you know, one of the great, one of the really interesting things that I find, you know, and then this is a little bit more on the compliance, uh, per, you know, part of sort of white collar enforcement, is just there's just intersections of all these different things that you really have to be uh, really on on top of, and and there's no real uh, right answer. I can speak to that OFAC um, case, which Eric, you should read because <laughs> Baruki is amazing in every way, but also hysterically uh, funny in his writing. But, um, you know, OFAC has sort of been in many ways at the forefront of this in uh, from the start, you know, they have um, listed addresses for, you know, I think two years ago was the first time they listed addresses and they've been involved in sanctioning different players in the ransomware space, as well as um, entities that were tied to ru the Russian government. And so this recent case just sort of was the first time that the DOJ was able to leverage that o those OFAC designations in order to be able to bring an action. And, you know, those cases and the kinds like Bitfinex and, and the terrorism cases, et cetera, they're important because they like create the foundation here, but they're also important because they show and test like the importance of blockchain analytics tools, um, like TRM, like chain analysis, like, you know, you can list a few, those are obviously two of the best, but, um, you know, they're going to be incredibly and increasingly useful in this space. And particularly so for cases that come out of OFAC or come out of cases that relate to um, Treasury and DOJ, because 
as we talked about with wallets, if you're not going through a centralized entity, you might not, not have to go through traditional KYC. And so like, what does that mean? And how, what does that look like in this financial system, particularly if there's no traditional intermediary in order to be able to um, ensure that this party is not a sanctioned party or just a party that hasn't been KYC'd. And so as someone that transacts within the crypto universe, whether it be in the decentralized space, all you see is a public address on the other end. How do we know that that's not a sanctioned party? How do we know that that's not a terrorist? And some people might not care. And well, first of all, that might be against the law, but second of all, a lot of people do care. So what does that look like? And does traditional KYC fit on top of these new rails? There's lots of new, really smart ideas being created out there based on zero knowledge proof, et cetera. Um, but there's still a lot of solutions and steps that need to um, be passed. Yeah, Jesse, to build off that, I, I know there's um, for, for a while the, the idea of an identity token. So you have um, a token just like uh, uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum, but, but this token is unique to you. And so um, and, and it can be issued by a centralized entity that is re regulated to provide identity verification services. And in that way, I think we're going to be we're going to see some real interesting solutions over the course of the next uh, couple of years from companies who are trying to innovate in this space. And you know, I, I think sort of what is the future? It, it gives us a, an interesting look into what the future in this space looks like. Because um, if if these solutions do come out, I think you know laws will need to recognize how how can you comply with anti money laundering laws. If, if you do know, um, uh, if you are able to sort of screen only people who have identity tokens that are put themselves in, in particular regions. I wanna go back some, real quick to something that Eric spoke on earlier, um, just you know, the issue of whether something's a commodity or a security. And I think uh, this, this uh, space is over the, the past five years, our clients, I think it's, the thing that's on the top of their mind, because whether or not your security or commodity comes dictates what legislative framework you have to comply with. And um, I think Eric's right, for the most of tokens out there, they do behave much more like uh, securities than commodities, but there's no, um, to, to what Pam said earlier, we're, we're still working with precedent that's over 60 years old and how we look at this. And I think hopefully over the next couple of years, we get guidance. I know uh, Senator Loomis put out a bill a couple uh, weeks ago, or less than a couple of weeks ago now, that uh, tries to tackle this issue and put most of the uh, digital assets under the purview of the CFTC. Um, but um, you know, I think if you look at the space, um, and why are why is something like Bitcoin a commodity? Why is something like Ethereum a, a commodity? They all had a genesis point. Um, and the way I have thought about it for the past uh, few years is in, in the Odysseus, uh, or in the, in the Odyssey, Odysseus ties his hands to the mast in order to hear the sound of the sirens. And in that way, he can't control the ship. And I, uh, even though he was the one who built the ship, or set sail on the ship. He was the captain of the ship. And at one point he controlled the ship. Eventually he, he surrendered control by tying his hands to the mast. And I think if 
you look at Ethereum, uh, it was issued by, it was created by Vitalik and uh, the co-founders, but over time it, it reached a point where I don't think Ethereum is controlled as, as we see with the governance um, debate that's going on in Ethereum today, it's not controlled by Vitalik anymore. And I think in that way, um, how the law evolves around uh, how much control is too much control for something to be a security will be um, will be interesting to see. I know we're litigating a number of cases that involve that issue at the very heart of it in, the, in private practice, but I think there is a number of litigations right now, especially the Ripple case in the Southern District of New York, that will be indicative of, of how the law will develop there. Um, I unfortunately have to drop, but um, it's really, and definitely over, uh, I'm underqualified to speak on this panel, so probably a good idea that I do drop, but really, really enjoyed speaking with all of you and for everyone who intended. Thank you. Thanks, Kyle. Rita, can we kick it to you to talk about um, a real life example of sanctions that you've seen in your workspace? Yeah, so one of the coolest things about transitioning to private industry from law enforcement is being exposed to the entirely other vertical of our business uh, of serving that compliance focused customer. And I'm happy to report that, you know, FATF, the Financial Action Task Force, will tell you that no exchange is unregulated. They all fall under their regulations. Um, whether or not that's true is, is for you all as attorneys to uh, and the regulators to, to decide. But um, the great thing is, is that they are as aggressive about compliance as they are um, innovation. Um, and I can report that we have a real live example of a decentralized exchange actually um, stopping a uh, transaction uh, to a sanctioned address. So we have the ability to be able to go from public sanctions announcement, whether that's OFAC, EU, um, to putting it in the tool for all of our users to see. And I focused a lot on, you know, talking about conducting on-chain investigations. It's not just uh, investigators who, who use tools like TRM Labs. Um, we also have transaction monitoring and wallet screening solutions um, where we are able to go from you know, uh, time to tool is, is minutes, not hours or days, right? We're able to immediately serve people with the real-time intelligence so that they can make those risk-based decisions. Um, no one wants to see, you know, child sexual exploitation material um, funds be passed through their their systems, right? No one wants to aid um, terrorist financing. Um, and it's really cool to be able to be able to give these um, compliance focused crypto businesses and other large exchanges the solutions that they need to be able to conduct that um, risk-based assessment uh, in an extremely short time frame and at such scale, it's it's pretty astounding. Thanks. I'm seeing we have a question here. Um... It says maybe a little off topic, but official international legal service was just utilized with court blessing via NFT. Is this where we're headed? I'm gonna open this up to the group and whoever um, wants to chime in can feel free to do so. Dan, you wanna, you wanna take no, this? No, why don't you start it? Why don't you start oh, okay. us off? I mean, I, I saw that, it, I thought it was really interesting and and uh, really terrific and, uh, you know, ingenious um i think a lot of the issues in crypto sort of sort of boil that down to that uh of we might not actually know who the person is that's where it's sort of suing so dropping an nft in their wallet might be the best uh method to do it and i i congratulate those who uh who thought that up 
Yeah, I'm familiar with it because it was USDC that was the assets that were in that digital wallet. And so we were named as a non-party in that. Um, and uh, I thought it was very clever to use because it, the, uh, the facts behind it is a, a, a person said, hey, look, I'm a victim of fraud. And they sought to get a temporary restraining order uh, um, on, on the wallet to, to have that wallet be frozen. So it was in New York, in New York State Court, Superior Court. And they wanted sort of proof of, of service. How do you do this with an unknown party in an unknown place in the world? And they, uh, they, they devised this, well, we drop an NFT in that wallet. And then I can prove, you know, through a smart contract that that NFT was actually accessed. And the court accepted that as proof that at least for temporary restraining order purposes, th that would have been sufficient. And the court entered an order um, directing that the, wall the assets in that wallet be frozen. Now that's just for a temporary restraining order purposes. We'll see what happens long-term if the court would accept that or it's gonna demand something further. Um, but I thought that was a very clever thing. But it also goes to sort of a real quote, key question about identity, which, which is what both Jesse and Kyle mentioned earlier. And I also, we've talked about tokenizing of financial assets, but identity is, is really a key part for, for this growing ecosystem, um, both from a, like a BSA and AML compliance, but I want to say, and for businesses that want to be compliant, but it's also really good for consumers. And I could just sort of the innovation that's happening. And this is in the shift from web two to, to web three. So the system we have right now on identity is you have these you know, large entities that are basically scraping as much personal identifying information as they can about all of their users, building these humongous data, honeypots of data, storing that data, mining that data, and commercializing that data. And anytime you want to get a loan, anytime you, you, you have a medical procedure, all these things are kind of being stored. And what if you had a model instead where the individual person controlled all of like, these questions about like, where they graduated from college, you know, what their salary is like, what, the what their loan history is like, what their marital history is like, what, the what their driving record is like. And depending upon the need, you could just do an identity token that's temporary, that just gets dropped in, that verifies, oh yes, this person has this sort of financial record. Oh yes, this person has this kind of academic credential. Oh yes, this person is medically licensed. licensed. And then it comes back to the person. Like this is the kind of innovation that, that is possible with, with, with blockchain. Um, so very exciting about that. Thanks, guys. Um, I think one of the things that makes sense to hit on today, especially with so many practitioners, is to talk about the regulation that we see um, from an in-house perspective and how companies are sort of navigating this tricky regulatory climate. Um, so I want to kick it over to um, either Dan or Jesse to chime in on that. Okay, I'll go. Um, well, I find it to be a really exciting space. It's part of the reason why I wanted to join Ribbit. So as I said, we're a VC and so we invest in um, fintech and crypto and I do all the regulatory diligence um, for our deals. So I get to encounter a lot of different interesting questions. Um, and on top of that, as an RIA that invests in crypto, you have to think about all these whole host of other separate kinds of topics. So there's the in-house as the chief compliance officer, how do we handle these? And then there's also before we invest, how do we think about how to invest slash how do we help our companies think about how to be compliant in the space? And, you know, there's a lot of different considerations and a lot of different things that like there aren't just clear answers to yet on how to exactly approach like custody issues or how to be involved in DAOs with, which are decentralized. 
But one of the things that I think a lot about is as more VCs and more investors get involved in the space, how do we address any liability issues and how do we think about what that means? And so like in, in a traditional VC, you're investing in a centralized company and you might take a board seat, you might not, you do some diligence associated with the deal um, to try and figure out what they're trying to create, what they sort of have created, et cetera. Um, and you have like a pretty good playbook on how to diligence. How do we diligence decentralized platforms or centralized players that want to issue tokens? So as a VC, and we're not the only one, um, we might buy a lot of Uniswap tokens, which I'm not trying to pick on them. But um, there's recent um, you know, class action that's brought against Uniswap and a number of their investors, not us. So I don't exactly know what's happening behind the scenes, but why are the investors brought in? Well, maybe they're just brought in because they're equity investors, but maybe they're brought in because they're holding a lot of tokens. Now, what does that mean? So as I was saying before, you know, if you have this treasury that's decentralized, it's controlled by the people who hold the tokens. So if I, as a VC, invest in X protocol and I say, I really believe in them from the start, I believe in them so much that I am going to buy up 20% of the tokens that exist. That means that I hold 20% control of what the treasury does. And I might vote 20% of what the treasury does. And so does that make me like the owner? Does that make me essentially the centralized entity that the SEC can come after? That like a class action lawsuit can come after? And how do we protect ourselves as VCs? Like you can do the diligence, but you can't control what everybody else is doing. So there's that. Another big issue that I think about a lot, but is not really talked about that much, except for recent news with this insider trading um, NFT case is MNPI. So what does that mean in public crypto markets? So let's say we're talking to a decentralized entity and we know the players behind it that are sort of putting out um, ideas or proposals for the people to vote on. Um, and so we're talking to them, but it's all really public except for the conversations that we're having. Does that affect what we're allowed to trade? And how does our personal trades at as an RIA um, on an individual level, how are, should those be impacted by what the larger entity is doing? There's like endless questions here, but what I will say, like one of the most useful things that I have done sort of from the regulatory perspective, because we do look at a lot of reg tech is think about what are the goals of regulators like the SEC, like treasury, like CFTC, what are their goals in regulating the financial institution? Very valid, investor protection, prote integrity of the markets, et cetera. Things that we all should be supportive of and stand up for. And what of those does crypto and blockchain solve? Maybe it's the transparency. If we can figure out a way to make it really clear and full disclosures for everybody that is transacting in crypto, maybe that's solved but maybe KYC is harder or maybe like sanction evasion is easier. So sort of overlaying all the needs and missions of these of agencies, whether in the US or abroad, and then overlaying that with what crypto can do, whether it be with a new type of identity token or like full disclosures or um, SAR reporting that goes out anytime like the contract shows that it comes from certain locations or certain addresses. 
the like possibilities are endless. It almost makes me want to cry. And it's the reason that um, I'm in this space right now, even though it's an incredibly tough time in the space. And there are a lot of people really getting hurt by the lack of investor protection, the lack of transparency, et cetera. Like that should not be minimized, but the potentials are endless. And it's like the time to like dig in and build a compliance space. That's my Je feel. Jesse, if I could just ask you a follow quick follow-up to that. And you don't have to name names or anything like that, you know, but you have, you have companies that you deal with day in and day out. Uh, you put the uh, insider trading in scare quotes, which I completely agree with. It was very, I think we're going to get to that case in a little bit. But are you like, I guess, if and especially for like lawyers involved who are maybe advising, are you seeing sort of like whether in some form of insider trading going on, like, or it gets reported to you? And if so, like, how should how should sort of lawyers react to that? Like, what's the what, what sort of like best practices if you can if you know you can? No, you know, I'm actually not. I think part of that is self selection though. Like, we're yeah. known as the regulatory VC that cares a lot about it. And I will have to say that like even the young entrepreneurs that don't know anything about the law, when they're coming and talking to me, like they want to figure out how to do it. They just might not know how or what jurisdiction to be in or what licenses they need. And some of that is just normal startup, like easing in, but some of it is like, they really just don't know. So the insider trading thing is more like just something I've been thinking about in this space. Like what is public? What is not public? Is everything actually transparent? What's decentralized? And so it comes back to like, we need to be a lot more specific about our language. I feel very strongly about in this space. Like we throw around words like DAOs, but that could be a variety of things. We'd say the word decentralized. What does that mean? What's DeFi? What are any of these things really? So um, until we have like a better set of terms, which includes security and commodity, you know, um, until we have a better set of terms that everyone uses in the same way, it's going to be hard to like tackle this space for fully. Okay, that's great. What about you, Dan? Do you have anything to add to that? Uh, it was very eloquent, but I, I think I would say that the barriers to entry on a lot of um, this this technology is pretty low. I mean, you could set up some entity, you know, in the Seychelles, and suddenly you're creating a large uh, stable coin that's backed by an algorithmic stable coin, and you turn nothing into an $18 million lending pool, um, like what happened with Terra Luna, not that they were, uh, and, and suddenly it can be, it can evaporate, you know, within a very short period of time, when you know, about a year, you can go from nothing to a huge, huge amount of money, and then it can go away over a weekend. And um, I think there's a very strong uh, interest in, in the United States to like, not only protect the consumers that are in the United States, but to in, in, encourage the innovation to stay in the United States uh, because I think you want the market participants actually to be well regulated. That is a that's a better system, sort of it, it leads to better growth, and it's more but it's better for consumers. And there's there's a lot of work that still has to get done. Right now, the states have been the leader in, in a lot of fintech innovation, and the feds have to catch up. I think it, you know, unfortunately, it's events like Terra Luna that gets the attention, and there are you know very you know I think a lot of discussions that are happening. And so I'm optimistic over the next couple of years that we'll see some a well-regulated, uh, thoughtful process. I think it's better if it comes from the congressional as opposed to the common law practice, either through the courts or particular agency actions. Uh, that's probably in the better longer-term growth. Um, but but my, my, my sense is it's, it's sort of 
there are a lot of market players, you know, like you're talking to people on here who are building companies in the United States who are trying to take advantage of the U.S. capital markets uh, and who are, you know, sort of to grow uh, and take advantage of this innovation. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that it's it's pretty, you know, if the regulatory burdens just never kind of material, if never regulatory, I think, structure doesn't form, it's very easy to see uh, market participants just going elsewhere, right? Why, why bother staying in the United States? So obviously in navigating this regulatory environment, one of the things that um, folks advising companies have to keep in mind is what the DOJ is doing and what sort of enforcement actions are taking place on the DOJ side. Um, and I think it's a good segue to, um, Eric, you commented, Jesse was using the quotes when discussing the insider trading case. Does anyone wanna comment on that or talk about some of the types of cases we've seen from the DOJ in this space? Sure, I, I can do, uh, you know, just to open it up, I can start with the sort of the, um, you know, the NFT uh, insider trading case involving OpenSea. Um, a very unique case, and I, wait, I think the, you know, the buzz and sort of the, the crypto sphere is how the DOJ sort of, you know, it was just a DOJ case, there's no parallel case, and the DOJ essentially took a sort of a pass on, you know, trying to tackle the hard question of whether an NFT uh, or, you know, in specific instances was a security and instead focused on um, the fact of the, you know, the defendant, Mr. Chaston's, um, you know, employment at OpenSea and determining whether that would be uh, qualifies as a, um, his, uh, you know, absorption of sort of confidential business information, meaning sort of the placement of NFTs on the homepage and then sort of tackling the insider trade in that way, saying because you sort of misappropriate that information in a classic sort of real just like theft case, uh, and then use that to profit uh, for for yourself. And that's really how it was charged. And I just thought it was a very, you know, obviously very very unique. Um, but you know, I do think that the that insider, you know, just sort of nothing like real personally, but just insider, you know, quote unquote insider trading the misappropriation of MNPI is probably going to be a major issue um, in in crypto in the next couple of years. Uh, I think there was something just announced today about how the SEC was taking a, a deeper look at it, and I do think it's going to be, you know, for on the DOJ perspective, it's going to be something that they're going to have to really focus on. How do you how do you charge it? Is it you have to make a determination first whether it's a, it's a security? And if you're not really like an insider, don't have sort of access to that information, maybe you haven't sort of misappropriated it uh, in any uh, in any uh, you know form. And then if you're the SEC, you're because you're only um, you know, and and maybe Pam can sort of weigh in on that even more than I can. But because you're only a you know, you can only really regulate securities under the Howey test necessarily what you're doing is making a judgment as for on the first instance of whether the item that that was allegedly traded on was a security so to begin with so it's really going to be a fascinating sort of you know opening uh, bid of next couple of years about how this whole thing gets gets shaken out yeah um, i think that's right i'm oh, sorry i was just gonna no, go ahead. i think that's right and um I think the question that I, I see everyone asking now are like, are NFT securities, are NFT securities? Oh, I need to add my disclaimer and I'm gonna apply it retroactively. I forgot to say it at the start of the panel, which is that nothing I say today, everything I say today here uh, are my own personal opinions and not the opinions of the commission or any commissioner. Um, and that applies to everything I've said so far and everything I'm saying going forward. 
Um, <clears throat> so I know a lot of people are asking, you know, if NFTs are securities. And I think that question is flawed because at the end of the day, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an unsatisfying answer and it's a frustrating answer to people that are asking the question, but you know, every NFT is so different and every NFT, just we almost leave aside that it's being called an NFT, right? It's another, it's another name. It's like ICO or governance token or utility token. It's, we really have to look at the economic realities. What's happening? Are you, you know, offering a product? Are you offering an investment product and are people relying on some centralized group of people to increase the value of that product. So um, just touching on, on, on NFTs, because I know that that's a hot topic. No, that's super helpful. Um, before we sort of shift more to the SEC and the CFTC enforcement side of things, um, Rita, can you tell us a little bit about scams you're seeing in this area? Um, obviously, everyone's familiar with business email compromises and those types of scams, but how is sort of crypto um, implicating that scam space. Yeah, and if I could write a love letter to SNDY or just generally all of the, you know, investigators looking at this, there are so many examples of just pure scams and pure fraud that don't force us to continue to push and debate these definitions of is this a security, is this insider trading, is this not? Um, some of the most productive and aggressive AUSAs that I had the opportunity to work with when I was uh, an investigator in the federal government was uh, or were folks who were just purely fraud minded. And there are so many examples out there of, of true scams. Um, again, our tool chain abuse allows us to, you know, kind of leverage this public reporting mechanism uh, to be able to actually get perhaps a more accurate or at least um, wider reach as to reporting. A lot of people who are the victim of scams, the last thing that they want to do is actually report it and come out to it. Um, you know, you have folks who are, are maybe uh, investing money that they actually did not have to lose. Um, one of the most common scams that we see, uh, at least one of the most painful, is this idea of a pig butchering scam. And that comes from a Chinese term um, that essentially means to, you know, to, to fatten someone up before you just really kind of Come in for the kill, right? Uh, apologies for the um, afternoon um, graphic <laughs> example, but that's where the term comes from. Most people don't really understand that. But um, yeah, so we have these investment schemes and we have these promises of 3% of returns every single day on arbitrage trades, on stable coins, and your typical, you know, um, you know, buy high, sell low kind of, uh, excuse me, <laughs> buy low, sell high kind of promises. And, um, you know, in some cases, they're actually receiving, uh, you know, gains, right? Right? And these people are being strung along and there's entire websites and there's entire legal departments and customer service representatives built out to be able to scam people. It's, it's actually, unfortunately, very easy to create an entire online infrastructure um, that does look trustworthy and does give you this air of, of confidence. And, hey, this is being invested in by these legitimate VCs. You know, even when people are doing their best effort at their own due diligence, um, they are still, unfortunately, getting scam by just really, really good dupes and really, really good actors. Um, if, if I could make one wish, it would be that the investigators really just focus there because frankly, there's, there's enough work uh, for all of us. Um, Jesse and Dan, can you tell us a little bit at a high level what sort of cases you guys worked on when you were with the DOJ? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I, um, I worked on some crypto cases that were primarily ICO fraud cases. And to say they were crypto cases, is not really fair. They were really fraud cases. 
and that that just took advantage of, of crypto. And, and it was in the context of, you know, issuing coins, promising uh, returns and taking advantage of people, sort of lying to people to, to take to take money. But, but my experience coming into sort of working a job full time with crypto is I, I just find it very humbling. I think people who say they're experts in crypto or crypto law, I, th I think is, I'd be very suspicious because I think this the law is, is evolving so much, so frequently. But it's also a real opportunity for people who maybe feel intimidated about this, that you can actually ob obtain subject matter expertise uh, in this area and, and contribute in a meaningful way. Um, before I hand it off to Jesse, I do wanna say one last thing though about, about that NFT case. Like, I get the reason why DOJ found that case attractive. And I think it's really this idea that there's such an asymmetry of information. If you're in possession of, of something, you know a token's gonna be listing, there's real value in that asymmetry of information and you take advantage of it and exploit it for profit. Like that doesn't seem right. And whether it's just charge, I mean, this is charged as wire fraud, right? Not securities fraud or anything. So I think they that makes sense to me, but it also, um, this, like, this concept of like asymmetrical, asymmetrical information is also like asymmetrical governance. That's, you're seeing a lot in crypto, like with a lot of these entities, for example, like who controls it or who runs it? Um, you know, there's a whole body of law that's evolved now around like fiduciary duties and board duties and sort of what we think about the Delaware law and, and it's kind of commonly understood. But what happens if you're an entity that's got, you know, as Jess was mentioning, you control 20% of the tokens or do you have fiduciary duties? This is sort of a civil area of the law that is completely like, I think it has to get built out. Um, so let's just want to add about that. Go ahead, Jesse. Sure. So I was in the national security section. So at first, at first layer, it had to have touching um, national security and threat finance. And so that means it, it ranged from money laundering to sanctions evasion um, to hacks that somehow might touch different um, border crossing and then also just terrorism. So um, I worked on, as I mentioned before, um, the tail end of a welcome to video case, which was essentially just products that are being purchased. This time it happened to be child pornography um, with cryptocurrency. And that was like when Bitcoin was the main tool that was being used by bad actors. And what's sort of interesting about the transition and as I learned about crypto, the criminals I was prosecuting was learning about, were learning about crypto, you're gonna sort of see that through my transition of cases. So like the next big case I did was this like terrorism dismantling case. And so it actually involved three different terrorist groups. So one, as I was talking about, was the Al-Qassam Brigades, which is the military wing of Hamas. They were raising Bitcoin only through either Twitter or then their um, website, uh, just having people send money uh, to the address. Now you could see them sort of learn as we follow them and we also learn because this was early on and it was some of the first big crypto cases. And so like at first it was just a static address sent on Twitter, send money here if you want to fund terrorism. It wasn't that blatant, but it was pretty close. Um, and then they moved it to a website where you would press this button, it would generate a new address, but then it was just one hop. There wasn't really anything happening. And we could see where all these bad actors were sending money for ter funding terrorism. And so we were able to sort of learn alongside terrorists learning as well. Um, so alongside that, at the same time, um, there was a huge uh, PPE scam. So it was the beginning of COVID and ISIS sort of took advantage of that. And they made a website, which 
in some ways, you, it, it's sort of more complicated than this, but you were able to use cryptocurrency in order to be able to um, get PPE for your nursing home, for your hospital. We were seeing like real impacts of this in the height of the beginning of COVID when no one really knew where to get masks or whether masks were a thing. Um, and then alongside that, the um, Al-Qaeda was using Telegram, which I now use. So I'm not saying anything <laughs> negative about Telegram, um, although I didn't know that at the time. But um, Al-Qaeda was using Telegram to create fake charities to say, send money here, but here's a picture of a gun. It's for a charity, but not really, blah, blah, blah. And so through all that, we were able to also leverage a bunch of seizure tools in a way that hadn't been used in a broad way, particularly in criminal side of prosecution offices um, to seize crypto addresses. So as, as I said, as they're learning, we're learning. So some of their uh, wallets are hosted like at a Coinbase, but not normally a Coinbase. And so we were able to seize those through exchanges who were very cooperative, did not wanna be supporting terrorism, et cetera. Um, but then some of them were unhosted. So how do we seize that money, right? So it's like a name and shame. It's sort of like stolen artwork. We may not be able to get the stolen artwork, but we're able to seize it in a different way. So we're learning new tactics. They're learning new tactics. Tactics. Then there's the DPRK case, which is still sort of going on. So I worked on um, the Lazarus Group, um, which is a, a really bad, large cyber bad actor group in North Korea, which many of you have probably heard of, they were relying on Chinese money launderers in order to get cryptocurrency. And as I'm sure you all know, North Korea is cut off in many ways from large parts of the financial system, but cryptocurrency provided an avenue for them to fund a lot of things that were going in North Korea and it's still happening. So in some ways it's whack-a-mole, but in some ways it's like we're learning what tools the criminals are using as well. And you know what I keep coming back to is that I remember when the terrorism case came out and we were very detailed, as you can see in the Bitfinex um, complaint, we're very detailed in talking through like how we trace things, how the government thinks things through. And that's, you know, that's somewhat purposeful, but I did get a bunch of questions of like, well, aren't you afraid that if you reveal too much that terrorists will stop doing this or they won't cash out at centralized exchanges? As crypto stands right now, um, you still like need to use these centralized entities in order to be able to get access to the traditional financial system. And criminals are just like the rest of us. They want money and they want to be able to have money that they can use. Right. And at the end of the day, like most of these tokens are not usable um, in order to be able to go to the store and buy a pizza or a soda or pay your rent or whatever. And so you need to be able to have access to right now, the US financial system, who knows what's going to happen in the next few years. But that's sort of like what we keep relying on. And I think there's a question that I'm trying to sort of do both. But um, I think there's a question about mixers. So what I can say about mixers, and once again, I'm not in the Bitfinex prosecution team anymore, but like you could see a lot of really interesting, um, very fancy uh, techniques being used by those two launderers in order to be able to move the bad money into their gift cards, into their personal accounts. And sometimes yeah, so what, they were- What is a mixer for just Ooh, to okay. set, the, think, set the table there? Yeah, so a mixer, and there are a, a lot of tools, just like in the traditional uh, financial system, there are a lot of tools that launderers can use or just people that wanna 
for any privacy reason, want to hide their money. I'm not judging anybody that uses a mixer, but a lot of times mixers are used as laundering tools. So essentially what they are is if everyone on this call puts one Bitcoin um, through a mixer to send to a friend, everyone puts their one Bitcoin in, it's all jumbled up and it's all sent to friends. And so it's unclear which friend is mine that I sent to, which friend is Eric's that he sent to, and or which of the other address on the other end. But mixers only really work if there's a lot of liquidity. So in the midst of like the Russian sanctions beginning, but it's still sort of a question, there was a lot of discussion about like, are mixers being used or is crypto being used in order to evade sanctions? Now, uh, at small levels, like just like with all bad activity, it probably could be used just like in finance, traditional financial system could be used to evade sanctions. But using mixers to evade sanctions, particularly at a high level, is not possible. And this is why. Because in my last scenario, everyone is putting one Bitcoin in. But if I'm a Russian oligarch, I have a lot more than one Bitcoin. And I have a bazillion Bitcoin. So if I put a bazillion Bitcoin in and you all put in one Bitcoin and all gets mixed up and the address I'm sending it to gets a bazillion and the rest of you get one, it's pretty clear where I'm sending my money. And that's why, right, and mixers are very expensive to use. So you're only gonna use them if you really need to and probably not at high volumes like that. Um, so mixers, but a number of other tools are beginning to play into the investigation, just sort of, goes to show that like criminals are getting smarter in this space, but so is law enforcement and tools like TRM and chain analysis. Just to, just to jump in there with the legitimate uses of crypto of mixers, because I know it sounds sort of ominous. You're sort of taking, taking crypto, spinning it through sort of a machine or website and then spitting it back out. So it, to create an anonymity, one of the things that, you know, we hear a lot, you know, from the, from our side is just that, listen, the, you know, one of the, the there, there are great uses for a you know a transparent blockchain where you can where you can tra trace transactions, but when someone identifies who you are and you have a lot of money, um, you know people we've heard stories about people getting threats from people. We've had we've uh, heard stories about people having you know robbers come to their house and try to you know steal wallets and that type of thing. So the it, it is a way which you know obviously you know we sort of compare it to. Imagine if everybody knew knew your, uh, your, your bank, uh, tr your bank uh, account, what the transactions that you were doing, could see how much money you had. And maybe your name wasn't on it, but they knew you go to Dunkin' Donuts every day. Sorry to throw in a little bit of a Boston uh, reference there. And maybe you, maybe you did, maybe they was right down the corner from your house and they could, they could map out who you, who you are. So what it does, it, you know, for the legitimate, legitimate sense, it does provide a little bit of a anonymity uh, once people sort of discover sort of linking your your wallet to who you are. Thanks, Eric. Um, we have a couple more minutes here. So I'm hoping that Pam could tell us a little bit about the SEC's new enforcement unit. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so again, <clears throat> we are, <clears throat> apologies, I have a cough today. Um, we are technically new. We have, uh, we were formed in 2017. We just recently changed our name to sort of reflect um, our expansion, our increased areas of expertise. Um, we recently added about 20 new, um, 20 new members to the unit, um, including additional attorneys, fraud analysts, investigators, other types of specialists, supervisors, and senior officers. So there's a real focus on a commitment to 
really rooting out the, the misconduct and, and the abuses in, in the crypto asset space and in the cybersecurity space. Um, and we're extremely busy, busy, a lot busier than I ever thought I'd be at the government. Um, so we, <laughs> we have, um, right? I mean, so um, <laughs> we have a few um, areas of focus, um, sort of our, our new renewed um, mission for the unit, um, you know, any variety of crypto assets offering, whether that's an NFT, um, whether that's an, an ICO, which aren't really common anymore, an airdrop, whatever people are doing, um, exchanges, trading platforms, marketplaces, where people have sort of immediate liquidity. You know, for a lot of these crypto, for most of these crypto assets, I think we touched on this earlier, um, if, if there was no liquidity, if you couldn't turn around and sell it to someone else for a profit, there wouldn't be a lot of value to it to an investor. And so making sure that those intermediaries are sort of policed correctly is, is an important goal of ours as well. Um, lending and, and staking products, those have become more popular too, where an entity is offering um, some type of, of yield or interest or reward. Um, again, that will fall squarely in the security laws often. Um, I touched earlier on DeFi, decentralized finance products, you know, again, the question is, is it really decentralized? Um, you know, the, the thing that sort of we see everywhere is, you know, we're just a software, we're just a software protocol. Um, and the question is always, you know, are you or are you sitting there behind the scenes? And are you, you know, talking to VC firms? And are you, um, you know, are you, are you taking steps that people are expecting um, to increase the value of, of their investment? Um, governance tokens come up a lot in the DeFi space. You know, it's, 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 again, a question of just because you sort of have some nominal input into what happens on the platform, that doesn't necessarily change sort of fundamental nature of the investment. You're still, you know, expecting um, someone to, someone behind the scenes or someone other than yourself to be increasing the value. You know, I think it was our, our prior chair um, who said that, you know, if you attach a, a hamburger coupon to a stock certificate, that's doesn't make it not a stock certificate. So um, we, we think about that. Um, NFTs, as I mentioned earlier, again, straight application of the Howey test um, and stable coins. So those are sort of the things that we're looking at now. Um, I think I, I jumped ahead in the outline and I already touched on earlier the different types of cases, but um, so I covered that already, <laughs> apologies. But <clears throat> we have six offices, New York, DC, Philadelphia, Chicago, uh, Los Angeles and San Francisco right now. And the unit sort of serves as the kind of centralized expert on crypto asset, crypto asset related issues and sort of coordinating between the different divisions um, and with FinHub, which is our most recent um, office at the agency, um, strategic, I'm gonna, I'm gonna mess this up, strategic hub for financial, for innovation, financial innovation, I believe. Um, and they're a great resource and we work closely with them as well to make sure we understand what's happening on the industry side as we continue to navigate these evolving cases. Thanks so much. Um, and what sort of governs whether the SEC or the CFTC has um, jurisdiction over a uh, matter? Um, you know, really what the underlying product is. And so that's, you know, often something will come through the door to the CFTC and it might be a referral to us and something will come through to us and it might be a referral to the CFTC. Sometimes there's a product or an offering that'll involve both and we can work in parallel on those types of cases. 
Uh, but really, you know, the reason why everybody wants to be like a currency or a commodity is because they don't want to have to deal with the, you know, robust regulation requirements of the SEC. Um, but again, you know, those disclosure, we're, we're just not trying to torture people, you know, they exist because, you know, as Dan mentioned earlier, there's like a, an extreme information asymmetry um, among often among, you know, offers of an asset and, and the people that invest in it. And, and particularly now when crypto is so sort of hyped up and there's all this FOMO and we've got celebrities and we've got Kim Kardashian and, and you know, Amber Rose, and I don't know, I've seen every name under the sun um, hawking a crypto. So it's really important, particularly for retail investors who just, you know, they're not sophisticated, they don't know any better. And, and if some big name person tells them to buy something, they, they might do it. You know, everybody, everybody's trying to, to live the American dream and get rich quick. So um, I think it's really important that we, um, we sort of keep that in mind. Well, simultaneously, you know, a part of our mission is, in addition to protecting investors is fostering um, innovation. So that's, that's always a, um, a balance that we try to keep in mind and we walk that line carefully. Thanks so much. Um, regrettably, I see we have one minute. I don't think we have time to take any questions, but um, thank you to everyone for, for joining. We hope that this was helpful and educational for everyone in navigating a really tricky space. And thank you to all of our panelists for joining. It was hugely informative. Um, so thanks so much.